Well, good morning to you all, brothers and sisters. Uh, bring you greetings from Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Vista. Uh, our people love our association, even though most of them have never been able to have too much contact with ARPCA as a whole, but we pray for all of you regularly and we praise God uh, that you uphold us in prayer too. Uh, it's a privilege, a uh, very humbling privilege to be able to uh, begin the day with uh, the Word of God. If you'll turn uh, to the book of 1 Kings and chapter 19, most of you probably know what's in 1 Kings chapter 19, and in some ways I struggled uh, picking a text. I feel like this choice of text is entirely unoriginal uh, to use when addressing a, a, a group of pastors. And, uh, and I, I did prepare this morning primarily with my, my brothers in ministry uh, in mind. Uh, those of you who are here who are not pastors, uh, this is primarily for my brothers in ministry, but uh, if nothing else, this will give you another way in which to pray for your pastors um, because of the, the challenges of ministry. But I, the Bible college that I attended had a pastor's conference every year, and every year without fail at some point during that conference, someone would say, turn to 1 Kings 19, and then we'd look at this passage and, and Elijah in it. But this passage, I, I think, is, is frequently um, misunderstood, and I think it's misunderstood partly because of a, a mistranslation in, in a, a key word in one of the verses at the beginning of the chapter. Um, I'll be reading from the ESV, although I'll, I'll be disagreeing with the ESV's translation here this morning. But I think that this is key to understand what the real issue here is in Elijah's life and the lessons that God teaches him when he brings him to Sinai. So let's just read the first three verses, and then uh, we'll really be considering the rest of this chapter, although uh, we will try to stay within time. First uh, Kings 19, verses 1 to 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, as the ESV words it, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba that belongs to Judah and left his servant there. Uh, notice that phrase in the ESV here at the beginning of uh, verse 3. It's actually one word in the Hebrew. Then he was afraid. Uh, if you have the New King James or uh, the King James in front of you, that will read, uh, and he saw, and he saw. Now, there's an obvious difference there, but uh, those who know Hebrew would know that at least in this form, the word for uh, to see and the word that means to be afraid would look very, very similar. In fact, the only difference would be one little yod, that, you know, jot, that smallest letter in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament. And so a lot of modern translations have uh, just assumed that what was intended here was the word uh, and then he was afraid because that seems to fit uh, more in the context, doesn't it? I mean, after all, Jezebel has just vowed to uh, kill Elijah within 24 hours. Uh, but if you look at this passage and uh, within the context itself, uh, I, I do believe that um, the, the textual support for the reading and he saw is much, much stronger than for the, the reading and he was afraid. Uh, I would go into more detail, but it is way too early in the morning for Old Testament textual criticism. <laughs> but 
if you look at the context of this passage, even itself, I think it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that, that Elijah's primary motivation here in running was not fear. It was not to preserve his own life. And there's several indications of this. I don't have time to point out all of them. But if you just look at what he asks God to do to him in verse four, when he arrives in the wilderness, what does he ask God to do in verse four? He, he asks that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah isn't running just to preserve his own life, just out of fear for his own life. He's actually asking God to, to end his life. And on top of that, if you know anything about Elijah from what's revealed about him in the rest of scriptures, you realize uh, this man is not one to be easily intimidated or easily frightened by the threats even of someone so powerful as Jezebel. I think you'll agree that fear for his life was not Elijah's primary motivation in running. So what was it? Uh, Well, often Elijah's actions here have been interpreted at, at least as far back as Spurgeon and his lectures to my students. They've been interpreted as a kind of uh, depression that can set in after some great spiritual victory, kind of like a, a letdown or a crash from an intense spiritual high. Uh, I mean, after all, what has just happened in chapter 18? Of course, that was the famous encounter on Mount Carmel. Right. And what happened there? It was all very dramatic, wasn't it? Uh, God sending fire from heaven to consume Elijah's drenched altar and, and, and sacrifice. Uh, the people in response falling on their faces and crying out over and over again, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then in their zeal, in their fervor, uh, taking the, the false prophets of Baal and slaughtering them. It was all very dramatic, all very emotional. And so it might seem that Elijah is just kind of crashing from this from this high. He's coming down from the great spiritual victory. But again, I think while there might be some of that mixed in, I think that Elijah's primary motivation in his flight and in his his suicidal prayer here is something more specific. And I think that the author of First Kings tells us this in that one Hebrew word that begins Verse three, and he saw, he saw, he saw what? Well, he saw that what had appeared to be a great spiritual victory on Carmel, that what had appeared to be this turning point, to be this spark of revival within the nation of Israel, to turn them back to the one true God had not really been so. I mean, the the next day comes and the dust of that encounter at Mount Carmel settles. And with it, all of the emotions, all of the fervor, all of the resolve of the nation of Israel to turn back to God. That's what Elijah saw. And you see, as you read uh, for the rest in, in, in the book of Kings, that the encounter on Mount Carmel did not cure Israel of of her Baal worship. They go right back to it. I mean, Elijah saw that Ahab and Jezebel were still in control. These wicked, wicked rulers. There had not been this genuine, complete, dramatic revival that he had thought there had been. This is what Elijah saw. And this is why Elijah ran. His motivation in this was not... Fear for his own life. 
It was not just a natural letdown after a after a spiritual high primarily. It was frustration over a lack of visible results from his ministry. It was disappointment and disillusionment caused by what he could see of the results of his own apparently failed and fruitless labors in ministry. I think this is seen also in, in what Elijah says to God in his prayer in verse 4, in why he wants God to kill him. Why is that? He says, because I am no better than my fathers. In other words, God, just kill me because I have been no more successful in turning the people of Israel back to you than any of the other prophets that have come before me. This is what is driving Elijah's depression. Elijah is running. Elijah is depressed. Elijah is is quitting the ministry and even wishing that he were dead because of what he saw. Because he was trying to draw his confidence, his encouragement in ministry from what he could see from the visible results of his ministry. I imagine uh, that there are some here who can relate to this, (laughs) perhaps relate to it all too well. But what does God do then with his, his disheartened servant? Well, it's really astounding to me to see how, how patient and how long-suffering and how gentle God is with Elijah here. He guides Elijah through the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, miraculously providing for him, sustaining him, and bringing him back to, to Sinai, to Horeb, to the Mount of God, sort of to where the story of Israel all began. Now, it doesn't take 40 days to get from Beersheba to Mount Sinai. Uh, All of this is intentionally set up to parallel and remind Elijah of the experiences of Israel after the Exodus. I mean, here God is, is reminding Elijah in the midst of his struggle of of God's past faithfulness and power and glory shown to his people. But at Horeb. And this is what I'd really like to focus on this morning. At Horeb, God teaches Elijah two vitally important lessons about results in ministry. Uh, Two lessons that we all as pastors probably already know, uh, but so often forget. Two reasons why Elijah and why we cannot depend on what we can see. Why we ought not to look to visible results to give us confidence and encouragement in ministry. And the first of these is this. Visible results may be deceptive because God often works imperceptibly. Visible results may be deceptive because God often works imperceptibly. This is really the first lesson, and this is a lesson of verses 9 to 13, the first part of 13. Let's read those. There he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by 
And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. I mean, all of these big, dramatic, clearly visible results, weren't they? Uh, of strong wind, breaking the mountains in pieces, this fire, this earthquake. It was all the same type of thing that had happened on Mount Carmel. Clear, visible results. But God was not in them. And what was God in? He was in the faint, tiny, barely perceptible sound. This is how God often works. Imperceptibly. Invisibly. In ways that we cannot see. Uh, Allow me to quote from Charles Bridges uh, in his book, The Christian Ministry, with which most of you are probably familiar. He writes, But we must remember also that present success is not always visible. Apparent must not be the measure of the real result. There is often an undercurrent of piety which cannot be brought to the surface. There may be solid work advancing underground without any sensible excitement. We are not always the best judges of the results of our ministry. God often does his his deepest, his most powerful work invisibly. He often hides the results of our ministries from us. And he does this, I think, for for very gracious reasons. Uh, At least two. He does this. He hides the results of our ministries from us to keep us humble and to keep us diligent. Because if we could see all of the full results of our ministries, we would take pride in them, wouldn't we? And we would rest on our laurels and be lazy, be satisfied with what we've seen God accomplish. Visible results are are often deceptive. They cannot be trusted as accurate indications of God's blessing. The presence of visible results does not infallibly prove the presence of God's blessing. But the opposite is always also true. The absence of visible results does not infallibly prove the absence of God's blessings on our ministries. We cannot look to these visible results for our confidence because they can be deceptive. And they can be deceptive because God often works imperceptibly. But the second lesson, the second reason why we cannot and we ought not draw our confidence, our encouragement in ministry from these visible results is that secondly, visible results can be delayed. Visible results can be delayed because God often works incrementally. This is what God teaches in the second part of this passage, in the second part of verse 13 to 18. Uh, Elijah evidently hasn't learned his lesson yet. And when God asks him for a second time in verse 13, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responds the exact same way that he replied in verse 10, the first time God had asked him this question. In verse 14, 
He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah's great desire in his ministry was to eliminate Baalism from Israel. And Elijah hoped that that would all happen in that one dramatic encounter on Mount Carmel. He thought it would happen immediately with all of that. But that was not how God had chosen to work. It was not how God had chosen to deal with Baal worship and rid his people of Baal worship. God's plan was much more incremental than immediate. God's plan, and he did have a plan. That's what he outlines. That's what this is, what he tells to Elijah. I have a plan, and I'm going to work it out. And God had this plan. He knew the best way to accomplish it. He knew each and every incremental step that needed to take place. And as you continue to read in the book of Kings, uh, Elijah does anoint Elisha. But then it's actually Elisha. It's Elijah's successor who goes on to anoint Hazael and to anoint Jehu. But it's these men, not Elijah himself. It's these men that God chose to use to rid his people of the worship of Baal. As you go on to read, of course, Elisha continued Elijah's ministry. Hazael, the king of Syria, was used of God to to punish and to destroy many of these idolatrous people in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Jehu was used by God to destroy the house of Ahab and Jezebel and eventually to slaughter the remaining prophets of Baal and even to demolish the temple of Baal itself. And so we read in 2 Kings 10, 28, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Now, Jehu wasn't a righteous man, but this is all a result of Elijah's ministry. He anointed Elisha, Elisha anointed Hazael and Jehu, and God used those men to destroy the worship of Baal in Israel. But all of this came long after Elijah had been taken up into heaven. Positively, then, God promises here not only to destroy these idolaters, but also to save and to preserve his elect. 7,000, we're told here, a modest number, perhaps, out of the hundreds of thousands in Israel at the time, but proof, nonetheless, of God's mercy and God's faithfulness to his elect remnant. This is how God often works. Like the tortoise, not like the hare (laughs) that we would prefer him to be. Slow and steady, incrementally, but invincibly and irresistibly. God knows what he is doing. And he knows best how and when 
to do that. He knows who are his elect, and he knows how to save them, how to preserve them, how to sanctify them. And he will do those things as he has promised to do in his own timing. To quote Bridges again, and I love this. Bridges writes, the seed may lie under the clods till we lie there. (laughs) Isn't that great? The seed may lie under the clods till we lie there and then spring up. The result of our ministry may be delayed. It may become visible only after we are long gone and may be reaped only by our successors. We may sow, we may water, another may reap. But incremental as the whole process is, God will give the increase. Brothers, we cannot look to visible results as our source of confidence in ministry. For such results can be deceptive and they may be long delayed because God often does his work imperceptibly and incrementally. So where can we draw confidence in ministry? Well, as we go back home, as Martin put it on uh, on Tuesday, as the glow of the GA fades behind us, where can we look to remain encouraged in our labors? Well, we must minister as we are to walk by faith And not by sight, not depending on what we can see, not depending on those visible results of our ministry by faith, by faith in God, faith in God's power, faith in God's promises, because he has promised, hasn't he, to accomplish his work. He has promised to build his church. He has promised to save and to sanctify his people. He has promised to bless the faithful laborers of his, the labors of his servants. I frequently, my first GA was that in Trinity, and I frequently think back to that message that my brother Steve Garrick brought, the minister's expectation of success. If you give attention to these things, you will save both yourself and your hearers. God has promised to do that. His word will not return unto him void. So, whether we can see the results of our ministries or not, whether we're in a time of visible results or not, let us look to God. Let us trust in him. Let us believe in his power and promises. One more quotation from Bridges in closing. He writes, the measure and the time are with the Lord. We must let him alone with his own work. Ours is the care of service. His is the care of success. The Lord of the harvest must determine when and what and where the harvest shall be. May God give us faith and may God keep us faithful. Amen.